You're listening to 100 Words or Less with Ray Harkins. Hello, one. Hello, all. Thank you very much for downloading this episode, streaming it, whatever it is you're doing. You're here to celebrate independent music. You're here to find out more about people that are involved in this thing that are just connecting in a real way. Not in like the, oh yeah, I listened to that record once and like, you know, I grew up and I moved on. No, man, that's not what we do here. We celebrate this whole beautiful independent music scene. And today's guest is an embodiment of it. His name is Nate Garrett. He is the uh, lead vocalist, guitarist for Spirit Adrift, who, for those of you that aren't like entrenched in the metal scene, they are a really, really good band, have worked with a variety of metal record labels from Prosthetic to 20 Bucks Spin, and now more recently with Century Media, and uh, are just doing a lot of cool stuff, and very DIY, because even though they've worked with these record labels, like there is this uh, spirit of partnership that they work, and they, uh, it's just, I don't know, I really, really like the band. Uh, I've followed Nate's story for a little bit. You know, I'm not like a super fan of the band. So I was kind of like interested in him as a person, which we dig really, really deep into it. And uh, we talk about the Arkansas music scene, which is something that uh, prior to Joe from Paul Bear coming on the show, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I really didn't know much about. And I love being an adult and learning new things. It's so, so cool when you kind of like, look underneath a rock and discover this whole music scene that you're like, oh, like, yeah, maybe kind of, yeah, I've heard of these bands, but yeah, Nate and I get really, really nerdy into it. So uh, yeah, that's what we got. You can always email the show 100wordspodcast at gmail.com. Please do that. I love to hear from you because, you know, there's no live music right now. And I am missing it. Like anytime I look at, uh, actually this past weekend, I was looking at a show I played in Japan in like 2010. And I was like, oh my gosh, like, I really wish not only could I play shows, but then, uh, you know, maybe like going to a live show. And I realized the last show I went to was on like March 11th. And that was obviously right before the lockdown and the world went crazy. And I saw Cult of Luna. And I can't think in my life a longer period of time that I have not gone to a show. And I know all of us are feeling that right now. So uh, I just want to say I commiserate. So if you want to hang out over email, I'm here for you. That's uh, that's always an open offer and invitation. And uh, I also, I have to plug this amazing documentary that just came out. If you are a fan of the band Bane, I could not recommend the documentary Holding These Moments anymore. Like, seriously, put this podcast down, download it, pay the $10. It's on every digital download video place you could possibly imagine. I just finished watching it last night and I kind of broke it up over, you know, like 40 minute increments over a couple of days, man, it got me so stoked, not only on my love for Bane, but then also just the, uh, the community of, you know, hardcore and punk rock. And it just, it's in my blood. And like, anytime I kind of forget about it and I'm reminded about it, it's like, Oh, this is special, you know, cause like we all get busy in our day-to-day lives and, you know, adult responsibilities and whatever it is else that you're doing, you sometimes forget how special this thing is. And I just like it. I like this show to put it in context. And that's exactly what this documentary does for Bane and frankly, the hardcore and punk scene in general, it puts things in context. And, uh, it's so important to me to, uh, you know, have those, those cultural artifacts that we all hold on to, whether it's a band or a podcast or whatever it is that that connects you to the thing that you love. So please go download it. Uh, some great people were involved in it. And I just, you know, it's two hours. It's a meaty, meaty documentary. And they they track Bane throughout its last tour, throughout its, their last tour. And uh, it just, it's, it's great. So go please download that. And uh, yeah, let's talk to Nate, okay? Spirit Adrift, their new record is uh, out now. It's called Enlightened in Eternity. It is a really, really good record, like a quite a journey. You know, we talk about four, five, six-minute songs. Really takes you there. So go check that out on any streaming platform or order the vinyl. All that physical media is, of course, available. So anyways, here is Nate, and I will talk to you after the episode is over. And I, I was always kind of aware of the band from, you know, sort of the, the get-go and the inception. Uh, and it was, it was always one of those things I never really dove into 
what you were doing, I was like, oh, this is cool. Like, you know, I know Deci- like I worship at the altar of Decibel. Decibel clearly is a large supporter of <laughs> what you put up musically. Um, but honestly, I didn't really know uh, about the, uh, I guess, the solo project nature of the launch of the thing. And, you know, I imagine, and this may be kind of a big question to start it off with, but I imagine that, you know, when you are creating something, you know, uh, in uh, just by yourself and you're putting it out there to the world and then all of a sudden people start to pay attention to it, no matter how small that audience may be, um, you know, it probably feels weird in certain respects or like, oh, like, cool. I mean, cool, but also like, oh, I wasn't expecting this to get any sort of traction or attention. Like, how did you kind of, I guess, process that as people started to, you know, kind of come around to you and your music and be like, oh, wow, like, you're really talented. And I was like, oh, oh, okay. Well, thank you. <laughs> yeah, it's it's strange. Um, I've been in a lot of bands, and I've been in a lot of bands that people liked. Uh, so I was, I was used to hearing compliments about the music that I've made. Uh, but yeah, it's a little different when it's totally just one one person and and when the the music and the themes of of the music are so directly tied to me as a person so it's like a very it's a it's a vulnerable position to be in being in a band period and putting your music out for people to hear is kind of a vulnerable position to be in but when you are the sole creator and sole performer uh, that's pretty amplified and yeah, in the beginning, I didn't. Usually, you have some buddies to help shoulder that kind of, uh, whether it's positive attention or negative attention or hurtful stuff. Like you have, you have this little family that can help you shoulder that burden. Uh, I didn't really have that. Fortunately, uh, people seem to really like Spirit of Drift a lot. I, I've, I really haven't um, experienced very much negativity which is really rare, especially yeah. these days, I think. And so I'm grateful for that. Um, yeah. You know, the, well, and, and I'm sure uh, not, not to interrupt your train of thought, but I'm sure like you saying that also, you know, a lot of people, especially like where you were coming from, you know, you had the experience of playing in bands and, you know, being active with other people. And then the idea of doing something on your own and like wrestling around with the idea, like, you know, should I call it, you know, Nate Garrett? Like, or do I give it a band name? Like, what do I do with that? Yeah. And that's, that's why I, you know, there's a lot of confusion. Like you said, you weren't uh, aware of it being a solo thing for a while. And, and there's a lot of confusion around uh, just kind of the logistical aspects of Spirit Adrift because it's such an unconventional thing. Like, uh, I mean, for one thing, when I wrote the first two songs, I, I almost feel like I didn't even write them. They just kind of appeared. Uh, mm-hmm. And I wanted to record them. And that's it. At first, I didn't even really think about recording them. I was just like, oh, this is cool. Like, what, what is this? Um, and then, you know, it was a re- really like a intense period of my life that that is kind of a significant turning point in my life, um, both personally and obviously now musically too, and like career wise and, and everything. Um, so I, when I had those first two songs, I just wanted to document that period of my life and record those songs. That's the only expectation I had or the only hope that I had. And the only intention behind any of it was I want to document these songs so that I can, remember this part of my life because it's super intense and really important. Um, so then w- once it started to grow from there, uh, fortunately as, as the band started to receive more recognition and more attention and, and actually become like this real thing, uh, I was, I was in this personal journey of, becoming more uh, clear-headed and more confident and more uh, stable as a person. So I think I was with every passing day that the band grew, grew and became more recognized. I became more equipped to handle uh, this newfound role that I found myself in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Cause I think, 
the, you know, the, like you were talking about at the beginning, the idea of you putting not only your music out there, that's one step of vulnerability, but then when you put yourself out there on top of it, the, you know, the tumult and everything that was coming from your, you know, alcoholism and rehab and all of that stuff, like, you know, you're adding an additional layer of vulnerability that's like, well, you know, like you're saying, if people don't like it, like not only do they not like my music, but they, you know, they kind of don't like me too. And I mean, fortunately, like you said, you didn't have to really navigate too much negative feedback initially. Um, sure. But yeah, that that's a real, you know, it's a heavy thing. And very, you know, I mean, it's, it's cool that you were older when you were doing that um, for a multitude of reasons. But one being that, you know, you maybe were a little more, uh, you know, e- even though you were reinventing yourself coming out of your addiction, the idea of that you would have maybe a little bit thicker skin, because I mean, I can't even imagine, you know, whatever, if you were 17 or 18 years old doing that, like, you know, you would be raw on top of raw, you know? <laughs> yeah. In a lot of ways, actually, I was a little more like cocksure of myself and confident when I was 17 or 18 than, That's true. Yeah. than I had found myself at 27 and when I when I started doing this music. But the one thing I just realized in, in talking with you just now I think uh, the fact that I didn't didn't even think far ahead enough to consider maybe other people hearing that early material because I kept it hidden from from everybody other than like my wife for quite a while. Um, so the fact that I didn't consider that other people would hear it allowed me to do whatever I wanted. I, and sure. there was no worry of being judged and there was no worry of people liking it or not liking it because I wasn't even thinking that people were going to hear it. I, so I think approaching it that way with a complete lack of any sort of approach other than I need to record these songs that are coming out of me so that I have them. I, I, you know, I consider myself a person who doesn't care what other people think, but I'm curious if I had approached it uh, with the intention of other people hearing it. I'm wonder, uh, like, I'm wondering if I would have held something back or if it would have been negatively affected in some way, um, like the purity of it. I, I wonder if it would have still been as pure. No, it's a really, really good point because no matter what size audience you have, you know, even if there's like, you know, theoretically 10 people paying attention to what you're doing, that could influence your ability to, you know, be uh, vulnerable and open and sharing or whatever, like, you know, whatever adjective you want to put in there, uh, it can't affect it. And like you said, because there was no, um, you know, there was no expectation from anybody besides you just wanting to put this out there. So yeah, no, it's a really valuable point. Um kind of focusing on you as a person, you know, I, I know that you grew up in Oklahoma and, you know, in a very small and conservative town. Um, where exactly in Oklahoma and what was like your family structure growing up, like mom and dad in the house and brothers and sisters? Well, I have a pretty uh, unconventional story, I guess. I was, um, so I'll back it up. I was born in Florida, actually. Oh, okay. Um, Got it. Yeah. And I spent the first four years of my life there. Uh, I was born, not a lot of people know this, and I've been talking about this a little more lately. Uh, I was born to two deaf parents, profoundly deaf. So like no hearing whatsoever, both my mother and my father, um, which is like super fascinating. And we can crack into that later if you want to, because that's a whole other can of worms. Uh, But so my mother passed away down there when I was four months old. Oh wow! So I, yeah, I never, I never really got to knew, got to know her. I've, I've learned a little bit more about her, especially after getting sober and being a little more like connected with my surviving relatives. I've, I've gotten to know her a little bit more these past four or five years. Um, but so my, my father's parents were down there in Florida with us, and so we just kind of moved in with them. Uh, and then when I was four, we moved to a town called Shawnee, Oklahoma, all of us, uh, my father and both of his parents. Um, and then my, my dad got remarried to another deaf woman when I was in 
second grade, I believe. And she was from a town called Bartlesville, Oklahoma, which is uh, probably like 40 miles north of Tulsa. So okay. like up kind of close to the Kansas border. And so when I was in, uh, when I was in third grade, we moved to Bartlesville and I, that's the small conservative town that I grew up in that you were speaking of earlier. I was there from third grade all the way through high school. And, uh, yeah, it's growing up in the South. Definitely. Um, it's had a profound impact on many different aspects of my personality and, and probably like my songwriting and my creativity as well. Sure. Yeah, no, that's a, yeah, there's a, there's a lot to dive into. See, you, you were an only child then I presume. Yeah. Yeah. Just me. Um, and then I was, I was pretty much like primarily raised by my grandparents, you know, cause my dad had, uh, you know, he was pretty young. Him and my mom both were really young when they had me. Um, there's a lyric actually on the curse of conception album where when I realized that I've, I reached an age where I'm older than my mother ever was. And that's like a, a super mind fuck. Um, yeah. So I, I wrote a yeah. little bit about that on curse of conception, but yeah, they were super young when they had me. Um, and obviously my dad was dealing with the trauma of having a four month old baby and his wife is gone, you know? So, yeah, I mean, I can't even imagine looking back like what, what that must've been like. Um, absolutely. No, that's, I mean, it, it's traumatic having a child, like, yeah, <laughs> and, let, yeah. And, then, and then let alone, you know, having the partner that you were supposed to raise this thing with, you know, being, you know, physically absent. It's like, yeah, that's a, that's a one, two punch that not many people uh, would wish on anybody. So yeah, I completely understand that. I mean, fortunately you had your grandparents to be able to, you know, back that up. And, you know, that's the, uh, fortunate fact of having an extended family beyond just the, you know, the immediate yeah. you know, mother and father yeah. scenario. And man, they've been the backbone of what few of us are left, you know? Um, so yeah, they just kind of, they kind of took over, uh, and let him do his thing. And then, right. you know, when he got, when he got remarried, there was like, that was like a, a tricky situation to navigate, but they figured the best thing. We just all moved to Bartlesville. And then mm-hmm. he and my stepmom lived together. And then I lived with my, my grandparents, but I saw him, I saw my dad pretty much every day or almost every day growing up, you know? Sure. And how did you, you know, like you were mentioning the, you know, the fact that you're both of your parents were, you know, deaf. And then when your dad remarried, he remarried a woman who was also deaf. How, you know, did that impact your vision of, uh, you know, people who had, you know, these, you know, uh, sense issues or, you know, what are handicaps, whatever you want to call them? Like, you know, how did that kind of, I guess, congeal in your brain as you got older and realized that like, oh, not everybody has the same experience that I do? Right. Yeah. So much of, so much of what I experienced as a child, I've talked to Joe from Paul Bearer about this because we've experienced some similar challenges in our life. Um, and we were just talking about how like so much of what you experience as a child, you don't process it until way later. And, and then in our case, uh, that's that realization of some of the issues you were facing is delayed even further because you're just, partying as hard as you can and running as hard as you can in, in your life, you know, just to try to like avoid it. Um, but I think, I think what I've come to understand is like growing up with a parent with a disability around, uh, from an early age. And and I think lots of, lots of children of deaf adults or, uh, children of people with disabilities, can probably attest to this. You have a lot of adult responsibility thrust upon you as a child. And in a lot of ways, uh, the parent child relationship and responsibilities are sometimes kind of reversed. Like you, you find yourself like worrying about your parent, like looking out for your parent, making sure this doesn't happen or that doesn't happen. Um, you know, I even, I even remember being, I couldn't have been more than like four years old because this happened in Florida, but my dad got and he was driving uh, and he got in this like 
four car, like little mini, whatever fender bender pile up or whatever. And, you know, the cops came and he couldn't, he had no way of communicating with anybody. And I remember like reenacting the car accident with like Lego blocks, you know, to show that like the car behind him hit him and then he hit the car in front and then they let us go. Uh, but dude, I, that was, that was when I was four years old, I was having to like help my father deal with the police, you know? So you, yeah, you're you not, take on, you're not, a, right. You're not equipped. I mean, you're equipped in the sense of like, you know how to maybe explain it, like you said, using Lego blocks, but like, that's to your point, that is not actually processing the thing that happened. That is just like, you know, kind of crystallizing it in your head and being like, well, I'll deal with this in another 15 years. Apparently. Yeah, dude, exactly. Like, <laughs> totally. okay, that whatever. And, and dude, that's kind of like my family were, we are just like really, really hard people. Um, and if we weren't, I think we would all be dead. Cause like my family's dealt with dozens of things that any one of them would destroy people, you know, destroy families and destroy people. Um, so, but yeah, growing up with a with a disabled parent, it does that. Um, it makes you grow up really fast and mature really fast, uh, and feel this like permanent sense of responsibility and a little bit of dread and anxiety at all times. And then the other thing it did was make me realize how much people take for granted, and so. I began to develop this deep seated resentment and misanthropy and, and just a loathing of, of the weakness of people and the, the, I don't know, just the fact that people take, take everything for granted and just complain about stuff that doesn't even matter. So I started to develop a sense of misanthropy and resentment towards my fellow man from a very early age. Um, it also, made me feel like I didn't belong anywhere, which, you know, the first couple of things that fixed that were Black Sabbath and whiskey. Like when I heard Black Sabbath, I felt great. That was the first time I really felt like great in my life. And I was like, oh, that's what feeling good feels like. Right. And then uh, when I got drunk on whiskey, I was like, okay, this is, you know, I just literally like fixed all of those issues that I just explained to you, which is why I did it for so long is because it it made me feel good. Band merch is something that you need to care about because, you know, let's be honest, it supports bands in a very, very real way. And I'm obsessed with band merch. Like I buy old shirts on eBay. I, you know, s- scroll through all of the, you know, cool places on Instagram. You can buy, you know, band merch or whatever. But there is one purveyor that is heads above the rest, rockabilia.com. So use this code PC100words, that's the number 100 words, and that lets them know that this show sent you, but then it also gives you 15% off your order. So let me do some real world math for you. If you spend $100, that's 15 bucks off. That's like me giving you money. So go do that. They have over half a million items, so many things that you can't even begin to scratch the surface. And it's an independently owned company, ships from the Midwest, so gets to you relatively quickly. We're getting in the holiday season, you know, like we're, we're thinking about Christmas now. So order it for your friends and family and look like the coolest person around. It's all officially licensed, bands get paid, everybody wins in this deal. So please use the code PC100Words, that gets you 15% off your order. Again, PC100Words, that lets them know that the show sent you and it's essentially me putting money in your pocket. So Thank you, Rockabilia, for your continued support. Well, and you had this—you had this really uh, corrosive mix of all of these things kind of coming into your life from you know uh, uh, the tragedy that everyone experiences in their lives, except yours was so much more accelerated, and then the kind of small town nature of boredom—you know that whole archetype that can happen with people, where it's just like you know, what do you do in a small town? Well, either get drunk or hang out at the local Dairy Queen or whatever. You know, it's like there's so much that was kind of going against you to be able to try to, you know, uh, I guess navigate that appropriate, well, not even appropriately, but just navigate that world, you know? Yeah. Our, we hung out in the Sonic parking lot. Um, <laughs> exactly. Sorry. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, but yeah, yeah I, I, it, it was frustrating as a, as a preteen, as a teenager, you know, you start to get hormonal and stuff and, and, and like, I'm a dude that's already just, totally corrupted with like anger and all kinds of 
shit like that, insecurities. And, um, you know, you, you start to get hormonal and that, uh, exacerbates anything like that. That's, that's pre-existing. And then when you're in a super small conservative Christian town, like, uh, nobody wants to have sex because they're terrified of like going to hell, I guess. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. Which like, even as a kid, I was like, this is ridiculous. Um, so, you know, you find something like Black Sabbath or like the Pantera home videos start to buddy up with other dudes who are uh, just insane with like trauma and rage and stuff like that. And then you go to get drunk and listen, to I hate God in the Sonic parking lot and uh, just beat the shit out of people and that sort of thing. <laughs> you know, like it was a yeah. uh, dude from about like age. Mm, 15 until I moved away from Arkansas when I was, uh, let's see, 20. So I was like 23. So like age of 15 to 23, I was just like feral pretty much. Sure. Yeah. Just, just raging, like acting, <laughs> acting on impulses more than anything else. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, like you mentioned, you kind of uh, started to feel a a kinship and a home within the confines of music and the ability to understand what it was they were talking about. You know, all those places that the beautiful subcultures that we're all attracted to in some way, shape or form from punk or hardcore and all that stuff. You know, how did you start to, I guess, get you know, different levels deeper. Uh, you know, I, I know you've mentioned previously, like, you know, whatever you watch the, the, the Pantera home videos and you see, you know, Phil wearing an, I hate God shirt. And like, you know, you start to go down that rabbit hole. Was that kind of how you started to go levels deeper that maybe your friends weren't going down? Yeah. You know what? Phil Anselmo promo pictures were like the biggest gateway for me because this was like, so when I was 13, that's 2001. Right. And I didn't have a cell phone. Nobody had a cell phone. Um, the internet like wasn't really a thing that people knew how to use. There was no Google or anything like that. There were no message boards that, that I was aware of. Um, and being raised by my grandparents, I was even further behind than most people on like technology or what was cool. You know, I didn't have any older siblings. I didn't, I didn't really have any friends, uh, when I was like 12, 13. I was playing guitar because I'd heard Jimi Hendrix at that point. Um, So yeah, I just, I lucked out by seeing Black Sabbath on VH1. And then uh, I figured out who Metallica was. And then I figured out who Slayer was. And then this kid, uh, this kid at my school who was like kind of a scary, like he was like a, an abused like pit bull or something <laughs> I guess would be like a good way to describe him. Uh-huh. Yeah. I don't know if he was actually like abused or anything, but that's just kind of the vibe that he had. He, uh, he told me about Pantera and this guy was such an asshole. He like tortured everybody around him all the time, but he told me about Pantera. So that kind of like even the scales in my eyes. So I got into Pantera. Um, and then like the CKY videos, they would play like, in flames on there. So I figured out what death metal was. Uh, I kind of went deeper with death metal. You know, I found like spiritual healing by death. I figured out who Malevolent creation was and all these scary death metal bands. And then meanwhile, I'm like looking at every promo picture of Pantera I can find and just looking at Phil's t-shirts and finding out about dark throne. And, um, yeah, no, I I was just going down so many rabbit holes at the same time. And it, it got to the point that I would even like, when amazon.com became a thing, I would go on, look at metal albums that I liked, and then just look at the little section that said, people who bought this also bought this. And so that was a very like unreliable trial and error way of like trying to find good music. It, it was difficult back then to find out about cool stuff. That's honestly, that's the first time I've heard that express that, uh, I guess, uh, discovery path expressed. Because I mean, it is it is interesting because you you know you were of an age where there was the you know analog world and the digital world, and you know in your you know infancy of music discovery stages, 
you were just trying to poke around and figure that out. But that's interesting. The you know because you know now people can obviously log on to any uh, service provider from a streaming perspective, and you know stuff will get recommended to you all day long that you know will be more accurate than <laughs> an Amazon listing or whatever. But I think it's so. I, I just love the idea of you know, looking at band shirts, looking at promo shots, like that's such a, uh, that's an idea that still exists today. Like, you know, I'm sure you are thoughtful in what you wear in your promo shots because you don't know what that could. And I just think that's so like, that is an idea that will really never go away in my opinion, regardless of, you know, where we're at with, you know, how people are actually consuming music. Sure. Well, I hope it never goes away. You know, I'm, I'm in an interesting position that I'm 32 years old. So I am the last generate, like I, I am smack in the middle of the last batch of people that knows what the world was like before social media. Um, and I've see, I've witnessed, I've witnessed going from a world where social media did not exist to a world that is completely dominated by social media. So I, I'm really grateful for that because I know what it feels like to have to like, mow 15 yards and save up money to buy a metal CD that has a cool like painting on the front, but you don't know if it's any good or not. Um, right. Yeah. If you buy the, if you buy the wrong, uh, you know, carcass record, you're like, Oh damn it, dude, I shouldn't have bought yeah. one song. Yeah. Yeah. I gotta, man. I gotta buy artwork. <laughs> and um, you know, when you actually have to invest that amount of time and that amount of risk, you know, when you're a kid, 20 bucks is a lot of money. Um, it When you have to invest that much into the music that you're discovering, it, it means a lot more to you, I think. And, you know, I don't want to uh, minimize people's connection to music these days because I know there's still a lot of people that it, it means a lot to them. But I, you know, George Carlin has a whole bit about like, there's more access to information than there ever has been. And people are more ignorant than they've ever been or or whatever. I'm, I'm really poorly paraphrasing a George Carlin bit where he's poorly paraphrasing the guy that originally wrote it. Um, yeah, but yeah, I I think as as much as there's, huh? I said, yeah, you're not a stand up comedian. You're fine. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, as much as there's like a more access to music now than ever, I think there's, more of a lack of appreciation for it in certain ways than there ever has been also. Sure. It's just, it it can be viewed as more disposable because of the transactional nature of a person listening to a stream rather than, like you said, investing, you know, $20 in a record that, and especially too, to your point, when you're investing money in a record and maybe that record isn't the seminal record by a band or whatever, you still are like, I, I, I got to like this. <laughs> you know, I got to yeah. get the work in. <laughs> so, <laughs> You'll convince yourself Certain things are great, you know? Yeah. No, I, I distinctly remember. I mean, like, I, I was raised more on the hardcore scene and, like, you know, that weird transition for a lot of, like, late 80s, early 90s hardcore bands that started to, you know, kind of transition into, uh, you know, frankly, just, like, hair metal because that was the only vision forward for these bands. They were like, we can't just be, like, a straight-edge hardcore band anymore. And I remember there's bands like Uniform Choice and... We started to do this thing, and I remember buying a record of Uniform Choices, like called "Staring into the Sun," and it was like there's one or two songs that were kind of more traditional hardcore, but then there were songs I was like, "What the hell is this? Like this is <laughs> anything like?" That. And it's, but I was like, "But I still like it. It's good." It's like, uh, no, it's not really, <laughs> but yeah, it's it's a tough. Like you said, you invest the time so much more because of the actual financial stake you've claimed in it. Yeah, absolutely. I'll, I'll never forget, you know, I <clears throat> I got into Pantera just probably like three days too late to go see them live. I, I think I remember looking at their tour dates on their website and I was like, oh my God, they're in Oklahoma City three days ago, <laughs> you know, and, and that was like the last tour they ever did. Um, <laughs> so I, I was like such a Pantera fan. Um, and then I, I just remember, I think I was probably 16 or or so when the first damage plan album came out. And I just remember like putting the seat, I went and bought the CD the day it came out, put it in my car driving home. And I'm just like, everything in me is like recoiling in horror, but I was just trying so hard to like trick myself into thinking it was good. 
And uh, totally, you're like, I, th- yeah. I think, dude, <laughs> I think that's the last time. That's the last time I ever did that. It just ruined me. It, it broke whatever mechanism I had that would attempt to, like, you know, some sort of feeble attempt at self-preservation. It just was broken by that damage plan record, and I've I've <laughs> never been able to try to do that since. Yeah, no, it's those are very, very valuable lessons. I totally get that. Um, so as you were navigating through, you know, kind of the world of school and like you said, the, this, you know, uh, cycle of, you know, self-abuse that you were talking about in regards to, you know, alcoholism and just kind of using that as a coping mechanism for all that you were going through. Was there any vision from yourself in regards to like, okay, here's kind of like my life plan. And I don't mean that as like, you know, here's my full thought out process when I'm, you know, 18 years old, that this is what I want to do. But like, did you know that you were going to like go to school and like kind of go through all that motion? When I heard Black Sabbath, I knew I was going to be Black Sabbath. I, I didn't even know what they were, or how they did it or what you would even call them. But I was like, I, I want to be any one of those four guys in Black Sabbath. That's what I want to do. And I knew that with absolute certainty. Um, so everything else was just in the way. Like my my grandparents really wanted me to go to college. I didn't want to. Um, I mean, I, I was like a. They pushed me really hard, man. Because they, uh, without getting into too much personal stuff, they had had an experience um, with what can go wrong when someone gets on the the wrong track. Uh, that was one of the many super traumatic things that happened in my family. So they, they didn't want to see that sort of thing happen with me. So, you know, I was like, I was kind of sort of forced or at least coerced into participating in every sport at least once, at least trying it out. Um, I played baseball primarily growing up. Um, and I, I was like actually pretty good at baseball. Um, and then, you know, scholastically it was the same thing. Uh, I, it was, completely unacceptable for me to not get straight A's. And, you know, I was a national merit scholar in high school and I got all these scholarships and stuff. Uh, I was like, I remember I wrote, a, <laughs> I wrote a speech for debate class, um, just airing out the Bush administration about the Iraq war and all the bullshit. Uh, and I won and I had to deliver the speech in front of the Rotary Club in Bartlesville, Oklahoma. And yeah. Oh, that was, that was <laughs> Needless to That's say, a, like it, it wasn't a huge hit. Um, <laughs> I can imagine. But you just, you just rolled in there, you know, essentially a dumb teenager, and them looking at you, being like, "Okay, kid, like you're whatever you're saying is absolute filth." Yeah, and then I just pretty, pretty much like told them Bush did nine eleven, mic drop, and then uh, they all walked out. <laughs> Dude, that's no, pretty kid. sick, though. I know. I, 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 I love that though. I mean, I, I, just the idea of the whether, well, I mean, most likely not changing anybody's mind in that room, but just the idea of you being able to present a different train of thought to these people that would never even have heard that or considered that. And even though you didn't change anybody's mind, it's like, that's still an impactful action in and of itself. So that's really cool. Well, I was a punk, man. I, I, hate war. I've always hated war. I've always hated the government lying to people. Um, and there was a one, two punch with the Bush administration. So it, I, for me, I didn't really care if I changed anybody's mind. I just wanted to piss them off. Like, cause of that's where I, I, I was 17 or something, you know, listen to black flag. And I, I was just like, fuck these people. I just want, I want to <laughs> like, I want to ruin these people's day at the very least. If I can't change when their hearts and minds, I'll just like fuck their day up and maybe, you know, make them have a bad time. Um, but yeah, anyway, so scholastics was, was very important, uh, in my, in my grandparents' eyes. It pushed me really hard with that. And, uh, I got a scholarship to the university of Arkansas and I went, I didn't want to go. Um, but I went. And then as soon as I, met the the key players in like the music scene in Fayetteville, Arkansas, I just fucking dropped out of college immediately. Yeah. And it's so cool because I, I did I did recently have a conversation with Joe from Paul Bear and it's so interesting when you see these college towns that, you know, have like no matter 
where they're located, they always have a vibrant music scene because it's this, you know, group of young people and all the arts that happen around it, you know, no matter where it is, it could be, you know, Arkansas, you know, Lawrence, Kansas, like all of these places. And frankly, I had always kind of written off the idea of, you know, Arkansas as a uh, music scene. I mean, you know, clearly there are bands that come out of there, but just the idea because it's not a popular tour stop. Like people don't play Little Rock very often, but then hearing your experience and then hearing Joe's experience, it was like this really cool insular thing that you guys were all participating in and contributing to and all this interesting music came out of there. And so I just, it, it was something that really... Uh, frankly, I mean, I'm glad I learned more about it as I have these conversations, but it sounds like it was really formative on you basically being like, okay, this is the path I need to go on. A hundred percent, man. Yeah. When, it, when I, when I started studying under uh, Chuck Schaff from, uh, from Deadbird, and you can hit me up later if you need me to spell his last name. Cause it's kind of weird. Um, but, but that's when my real studies began was when I met that guy. Um, you know, he, <laughs> so Chuck from Deadbird, uh, and Jeff from wake with an R were yeah. in a band together when they were kids that like blew up. Um, they were on the mortal Kombat soundtrack. They were in the movie mortal Kombat, the band that's playing in that weird, like nineties goth club or whatever at the beginning of the movie, the band playing on the catwalk. That's Chuck and and Jeff from Arkansas. No. Wow. Dude, that is so (laughs) wild. I never, I I did not know that. I mean, you know, everyone always famously points to Cannibal Corpse and, you know, Ace Ventura Pet Detective. Holy moly, that just blew my mind. Yeah, that's that's amazing. I had no idea. They were like 17. I think, I think Jeff might have been like 15 or 16. Um, And I actually, I had a podcast for a minute where I talked to Jeff about this. Uh, he, He was talking about like, going to Hollywood and seeing an espresso machine for the first time. And then Christopher Lambert, the Highlander is just like walking by. <laughs> um, so good. So these dudes like from an early age, like experienced just about everything you could experience playing in a band and making music and, and like the business side of it and the creepy side of it and the highs and the lows, you know, they packed a, a lot of experience in super quick. And, uh, I met Chuck um, probably 2006 or seven and we just, we bonded, man. He's still one of my best friends. I still talk to him uh, at least once a week. I I wish it was once a day. I'm sure he did too, but you know, super busy. Um, But dude, yeah. Chuck from Deadbird was kind of the crux of that scene. I think anybody there would probably tell you that. And he was in Fayetteville. I was in Fayetteville. Uh, And then you had the wake dudes in Little Rock. Um, and then there's this legendary Little Rock band called Sea Hag that was going at the time. Uh, there were a million good bands in Fayetteville. I, I lucked out, man. Like Joe and I, Joe from Paul Bear and I both came in as outsiders, you know, to go to school. And uh, it it's just, I, I almost think that gives us like an even greater appreciation for what was going on. Not, mm-hmm. not that the natives didn't appreciate what was going on because they obviously did, but, but for me coming from like this really small town where there's nothing really cool or uh, dangerous, like ar- artistic type stuff going on, to suddenly find myself in this world of just like every other person I'm hanging out with is a musical genius and, and just an encyclopedia of knowledge about any any cool aspect of music. These guys were just literally like walking encyclopedias and they had firsthand knowledge of like playing a sold out show at the Virgin Megastore in Paris and, and that sort of stuff. Um, yeah. So it, yeah. I, I attribute all, all of everything that's happened good for me with music is because of those guys in Arkansas. Well, and it, I, it's so rad for you to paint that picture. Cause I do think it's really interesting that y- you were coming in as, like you said, an outsider. So you do have this perspective to juxtapose against where you're like, dude, you guys realize how cool the thing is that you have here? And there, you know, people are like, yeah, but you're like, no, but do you realize (laughs) this is really something? I think we all did realize, man, I'm sure Joe talked to you about this venue 
in Little Rock called Downtown Music. Um, and man, Arkansas is like haunted or or there's like evil spirits or Satan or something is there because it like I experienced too much weird, creepy, like synchronistic stuff for it to just be explained away rationally. And uh, downtown music had, well, it must've built it on like Indian burial mounds or something. Cause it, it was like a magnet for all the most interesting people I've ever met, you know, and just chaos. It, it was just chaos all the time. Um, yeah. Great bands. Like every band that came through played there. It was just violence and, uh, unhinged, just like artistic freedom. And, uh, it was just chaos dude at 18 to whatever, 21, 22 years old. It was, it was paradise. I, I couldn't have asked for a better, a better home base than Arkansas for those formative years. Yeah. That's incredible. And so then, you know, as you started to get out there with your own, you know, uh, musical projects and, you know, like playing in bands and kind of getting that whole experience, did you, uh, I guess, like to tour initially? Um, you know, was it one of those things that that was always, I mean, I know, like you said, being one of those four members of Black Sabbath was always your goal, but was tour kind of what you bargained for? Was it something that you had to learn to like? Where did you land? I on loved that? it, dude. I lived for just chaos. I didn't like when I was that age, all I did was drink hard liquor, like every waking moment. And if there were drugs or whatever around, sure. And, uh, where am I sleeping outside in the dirt? It was, I was just like invincible. I just, I never ran out of energy. I mean, at one point in Arkansas, I was working a full-time job, a part-time job and playing in five active bands all at the same time. And I just like, I never slowed down. I never slowed down. I loved it. And yeah, going on tour was like, uh, taking that chaos and just amplifying it. You know, I think I, right. I first started touring in 2007 uh, and dude, we just beat the same circuit to death. We just toured the same nothing circuit over and over. And I loved it. <laughs> sure. Sure. And so, I mean, I guess juxtaposing that against what you are, uh, you know, now that you are sober and like your touring experience is, you know, clearly different than what you experienced back then, the kind of, you know, traveling circus that you probably were, um, you know, how, how do you, I guess, compare and contrast those two? Well, the whole thing is just, I, I don't even know if I could compare um, the way that I, the way that I approach uh, the position I'm in now versus mm -hmm. back then. I mean, it's like a sacred thing to me now. It's like one of those things of like, how much do you really love this? How much do you love music? Um, it's easy to tour when you're fucked up the whole time and you're just going a thousand miles an hour and nothing matters. And you know, the partying is almost even more of a priority than putting on a good performance or accurately representing your music. Um, and I look back at some of that and I'm just like, man, what a mockery we were making of ourselves and of this sacred thing. Music is sacred, you know, and I, the older I've gotten and the more, uh, more of a clear understanding of myself and of reality and just the truth uh, that I'm able to arrive at. It's that music is sacred. It saved my life like so many times. Um, I don't really like touring now. I haven't really liked touring in a while. I got really burnt out. Um, you know, I just look at it as a, I love playing. I love playing my music for people face to face. And that to me is one of the, the most enjoyable things you can do in life is connect with people on that level. It's almost like a, you know, it's the closest thing we have to like a telepathic bond with people. You can communicate your feelings to someone regardless of any sort of uh, distance over time or space. You can make somebody feel exactly what you're feeling by shooting vibrations at them. That's literally what it is. It's, it's telepathy, dude. And mm -hmm. that this is not some like hippie talk. That's just, that is what it yeah. is, you know? Yeah. Physiologically, um, that is what is happening. Yep. Yeah. And you know, it, it, when I was younger, I, it was just all, all the intentions were all fucked up. It was like, Oh, it's party. Let's, 
this is badass. Like maybe we'll get laid or something, you know, like that's bullshit. That's just, that's not art. And that's not like, that's not really cool. Um, I think it's so much cooler to like do something profound. Uh, so yeah, I, you know, I got burnout, a little burnout on touring the past couple of years, uh, doing stuff that I didn't really want to do sometimes, um, not with spirit of drift, but, but with the other band I was in, um, mm-hmm. and it just, you know, when your heart and your soul isn't all the way in it, you get a little bit burnt out. But, but that being said, you know, the last time I played a show was in December. So that means that this is the longest I've ever gone without playing a show since I first started playing in bands when I was in eighth grade. Um, yeah. And I, yeah, I it's a miss whole, it. whole different paradigm. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I, I miss yeah. it for sure. I would gladly go on tour now. Yeah, for sure. The, uh, there's the last two things I want to hit on was the, um, you know, when you, uh, you know, decided to, you know, enroll yourself in, uh, you know, the detox program that you were going to, you know, and basically pulling yourself out of the you know, abusive cycle that you were, you know, going through, um, you know, usually once people uh, emerge from detox, they clearly, attach themselves to uh, something else that they can, you know, do that's constructive and healthy for them, whether it's, you know, religion, whether it's like, you know, (laughs) working out or whatever the case may be. Did you find yourself uh, kind of attaching to something like that, that you would, you know, make your, I guess, make yourself feel better? Or was that through the music that you were able to, you know, really kind of be like, okay, this is healthy for me. I'm going to, you know, whatever, triple down on this even more. Yeah. Well, the music just came out. It, it wasn't even something that I decided. It just started sure. coming out. And it's still to this day, five and a half years later, it hasn't slowed down and it hasn't stopped. I, I think I had, I had put a tourniquet on, on something that needed to be flowing all those years and that wasn't flowing. And now the tourniquet has been released. Uh, Cause it's it, dude, five and a half years later, it hasn't slowed down at all. Not even slightly. Um, but uh, yeah, I also started running, just physically moving around because, you know, at the end of my drinking, I was like basically dead. I don't know how I didn't just, I, I think I was so close to physical death. It could have gone that way any given second for like two years, the last two years. Um, so I, I don't know how I'm still here. I'm grateful I am. Uh, but I, you know, at, after being in that, type of shape uh it was nice to start being able to do stuff again just physically so i started running uh and you know more recently went on tour with cannibal corpse and uh their roadies their crew guys who i'm still friends with i actually just saw their uh tour manager he came out to the house here a couple weeks ago um they got me into like powerlifting and stuff so i've been doing that i got into boxing i've always been into boxing my best friend growing up was a golden gloves boxer uh but you know, despite all my pretty impressive, like amateur fighting career, I never actually learned how to do it properly. (laughs) So I've been, I've been doing that. Um, and that feels really good. It's cool because it's physical, but you can also learn while you're doing it. You're learning techniques, you're learning about your own body and your mobility and your mind and and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, I, just to speak on the subject generally, I was talking to my wife the other day and I said, you know, I don't think people that have whatever I have ever beat it. So if you want to call it addiction or what, I I think it's some sort of like probably some kind of genetic, like malady or something. Um, And the people, right. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. It's, I I think science has pretty much proven that it's a genetic thing. Um, and, And I know in my heart that I was like born with it, you know, and, and trauma probably just uh, accelerates whatever that that mutation in the in the DNA or whatever it is. Um, but people don't beat it. They so every addict that I know has at least one or two active addictions that they are uh, actively involved in. And so the only the only way to survive it is to it's sad. It sucks, dude. It's depressing sometimes, but it's to figure out like what addiction can I be actively involved in? That's going to ruin my life the least basically. So, (laughs) 
Um, my biggest addiction is spirit of drift for sure. And it, it takes over pretty much every waking moment of my life, at least when I'm working on a record. Um, so, you know, I've got a couple more pre-album projects that are being finalized right now. Uh, so hopefully in a couple of weeks I can, I can turn that addiction off at least temporarily so I can be a good husband for a minute. Right. <laughs> right. Um, and what, uh, what motivated you to, uh, go to Phoenix? I mean, you know, Phoenix is clearly a, uh, you know, very musical town, especially from, you know, the punk hardcore and metal scenes. Like there's a, a lot of stuff going on there and has been for many, many years. Um, but what motivated you to get to Phoenix? Well, it's kind of random. I, when everything dried up in Arkansas, I was just kind of treading water and Chuck from dead bird moved away. Uh, and that was a nail in the coffin for me. I was like, I'm getting the fuck out of here. Um, and I, I had worked a really weird job for Castrol, the oil company. And I made all this money like six weeks. I didn't even really do anything. And I, I was just <laughs> kind of rob robbing Castrol, which felt pretty good. But sure. then I had all this money. I'm like, shit, I can get out of here now. Um, Cause I was about to die in Arkansas too. I'm pretty sure. But so I, I hit up that man harp from new Orleans, H A A R P they're on Phil Anselmo's label. Yeah. And, yeah uh, I remember. They needed a guitar player. So I hit them up on MySpace, and they were like, hell yeah. I had a couple guys vouch for me. So I was going to go to new Orleans and join harp. And uh, then I was even in my, my foggy state. I was like, dude, if I go to new Orleans and join harp, I'm going to die. Like there's no, there's no (laughs) way. Like if I, yeah, New Orleans is like the most hospitable town for, uh, drinking and drugs in America for sure. So I was like, dude, I'll, I'll definitely die if I go down there. So I was looking at Austin, Texas, uh, which is fortunately where I ended up nine years later. Um, cause I had some friends in Austin, obviously a great musical town. And I, I'm very, very attached to the South. I love the South. Uh, but then I had a couple buddies that went to this recording school in Phoenix and they had some pretty good results come out of it. And so I was able to kind of like my family and I, my, my grandparents and I weren't really on great terms at the time, but as soon as I mentioned like school, they didn't even care what it was. Um, and I, I wanted to be cool with them. You know, we wanted to be cool with each other. So we were kind of talking about the possibilities. I was like, let me go to this recording school in Phoenix and, uh, that made them happy, which, which made me happy. You know, like I said, we, they were probably like terrified at the path that my life had taken at that point. Um, so it kind of smoothed things out with them and I love them. I always have loved them. They've always been, you know, super supportive of me. Uh, so that, that decision kind of helped smooth things out with them. Uh, moved to Phoenix, didn't know anybody really met my wife within like two months of being there. So that kept me there for, for nine years. Uh, and you know, I never really super identified with Phoenix, but the three best things that have ever happened to me in my life all happened there. I met my wife, I got sober and I started writing spirit of drift songs. And those are, those are the top three best things that happened to me in my whole life. Uh, right. So like the city's you know, pre- the city's pretty foundational. I, I like it. Here. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's okay. I, I'm glad to be back in the South though. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, I totally understand. Um, well, Nate, thank you so much for walking me through all this. Like, you know, I, I just, uh, I knew it would be a, uh, interesting and intellectual conversation and you, uh, delivered in spades. So thank you very much for walking me through all this stuff. Thank you, man. Yeah. I had a great time. I'm sorry. I, once I get on tangents, I can't stop. Welcome to podcasting, my friend. <laughs> hey, real quick, man. I want to shout yeah. out my friend, Tommy Cantwell from Gouge Away. Cause I know he's a big fan of this podcast. Um, oh hell yeah 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 i had christina on uh the show yeah a couple of years ago but yeah band, band's awesome so that's cool, cool. well I'll, yeah i, I, will I love in here for sure i love tommy and then this will be a test to see if he listened to the whole thing <laughs> <laughs> dude i love it that's that's actually the first time someone's been straight up and called out on the show so <laughs> yeah is, let's see let's see if he listened Thank you very much, Nate, for coming on the show and uh, hanging out with all of us weirdos in the corner talking about, you know, metal and hardcore and punk. <laughs> that's that's what I like to view this podcast audience as, just like a bunch of weirdos hanging out in a corner being like, dude, have you listened to that band's new record? Like, because that's, uh, you know, even though I'm like a full 
grown adult. That's all I do. <laughs> I just I just care about music way too much. So anyways, thank you, Nate. And thank you to Stephanie for uh, hooking this interview up. Next week is a just a, I was so excited to have this person on. His name is Evan Patterson, plays in JJL. He also played in Breather Resist. He played in Young Windows. I hadn't talked to him for probably 15 years, but we just dove right back in and it was such a fun conversation. So I had his brother on probably earlier in the year. I can't exactly remember because all these episodes, you know, might, might blend into one another, but uh, I had Evan on and that's what we got next week. So until then, please be safe, everybody.